The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. It is time for Streetwise with former chief of the New York City Sheriff's Department, former chief of the Seagate Police Department, retired New York City detective, Time Warner Public Access Media Award, Joe Franklin Super Excellence in Broadcasting Memory Lane Award, New York Veteran Police Association Streetwise Production, host of Streetwise, Mr. Lou Tarano. Uh, good evening and uh, welcome back to uh, Streetwise. Uh, my guest uh, this evening, uh, who's on the line, uh, is a professor of uh, philosophy of uh, honors and distinguished faculty, Department of uh, Philosophy, DePaul University, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I caught him on uh, Fox and Friends last night, you know, so uh, interesting. Uh, they got him before I did, but also uh, on NBC uh, had him on uh, some breakfast show, which I don't even want to talk about, but uh, I have to tell you this about my guest. He's an author of... Uh, Four great books, maybe five. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. His latest book is We Have Overcome. I have to tell you about this gentleman. You know, he is the example of the American dream. Uh, you, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, I do have to tell you this. I think in his former life, he was Aristotle, you know, the Greek philosopher, oh, I think 400 years uh, BC before Christ. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. or Professor Jason Hill. Uh, Dr. Hill, welcome uh, to Streetwise. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, what's your thought on me comparing you with Aristotle? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm honored. He's my favorite philosopher. I, I couldn't, I, he's a stupendous mind. Uh, I'm just a footnote. I'm just a footnote to him, <laughs> if he, I'm anything at all to him. Well, well you know, folks, if, if you watch Dr. Hill, uh, he is the philosopher, at least I think so. You know, you, you, you wrote, I'm going to just, just touch on quickly, uh, some of the things that uh, hopefully we'll have time to uh, talk about is some of the things that you have already spoken about, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives uh, Matter, uh, you know, things like that that it's been pretty much we've been talking about in this country for, uh, I guess, a short or long time. Uh, his books are, the latest one, We Have Overcome. I like this book. I'll tell you why. I think it's uh, it's his letter. When I say his letter, Dr. Hill's letter, uh, thanking America, like a love letter, which I think um, I'm repeating his uh, term. Uh, it's an immigrant uh, letter to the American people, thanking them uh you know, for the opportunity to get where he is. Another book is, uh, I, I have to mention this, uh, he's from uh, Jamaica, the Caribbean uh, island of Jamaica, and he, he did have some obstacles. He tells you no, but I think he did. Being uh, a black, uh, gay man coming to this country as a young person, uh, if you listen to him and you talk about him, obviously he loves his country like all of us do, or hopefully all of us do, most of us do. But he is so successful in his life, and uh, that's, uh, and again, a Jamaica boy in search of America. I, I have to believe that's in regard to him. Uh, the other thing I touched on, which maybe I didn't, is civil disobedience and politics of the identity, which is uh, where we shall... When We Shall Not Get Along. That's in the book, and Becoming a 
cosmopolitan. I, you know, when I hear that, I think of a good drink. But uh, he's talk, <laughs> you know, the doctor was talking about uh, an individualism and and being who he is. You know, uh, again. You know, you compliment this country. It's unbelievable. You appreciate this country, meaning America, than most people that were born in this country. I have to ask you this. How did that come about, Dr. Hill? Well, you know, I I came to America when I was 20 years old. And as a child growing up in Jamaica, I had always I had learned a lot about American history. And I had visited America as a child. <clears throat> and I had decided from a very early age, maybe around the age of 14, that America was not only the greatest country on the face of the earth, mm. that it was also the most moral country. And in my book, mm. We Have Overcome, I have a chapter called the, the Moral Meaning of America. I thought that this was an unprecedented phenomenon in the history of humankind. And I was a very precocious child. I had been reading world history from about the age of 12. Mm. And I had never, ever seen the creation of a republic or a country such as this. I had seen the creation of nation states of civilizations and i was i knew that i had to come to america i said to my mom my mom said to me at one point because we had a uh, there's a swiss side of my family and my mom said do you want to go to switzerland and i said absolutely not europe is boring i love europe but it's, <laughs> america is where it's at I, so i came to this country at 20 with my my mom thought we were too young so she she came along for moral support but i basically came with 120 dollars in my pocket and started from scratch and um, worked three jobs to put myself through school and have never had to revise my conception of this country. I still think it's the greatest country on earth. I'm a great patriot. I think it's the most moral country on earth, the most benevolent people I've ever witnessed in my life, having traveled to probably 75 countries now, totaling, giving you know lectures on my, my books. Mm. The American people are my favorite people. I have never met a more charitable, kind-hearted, and benevolent people. And it, it galls me that we live in an age of what I call Americophobia, mm. where this country is painted as imperialistic, mean-spirited, racist, unjust, oppressive. Um, I had to write a book to set that record straight and let the American people know how underappreciated their country is and how underappreciated their spirit is. Mm. Interesting. You know, you know, it's it's. I'll tell you, it's also uh, when you first came here from uh, Caribbean Island, J- Jamaica, you moved down south, which you would think, you know, you would have obstacles, you know. And yeah. uh, in your book, you, you, I mean, you're complimenting the southerners. And I, I know I was when I was a young kid uh, on the ship. I was in Mormont, Texas, and I saw things that I couldn't believe because I'm born and raised in New York, Manhattan. Uh, the things I saw in Beaumont, Texas in the 50s, I wish saw the shock, different bathrooms, different water, drinking fountains. Yeah. You couldn't walk on the same sidewalk. And it was, uh, and I almost got in trouble for that because I had a conversation with a young, uh, I guess, black uh, lady, a young girl at that time. And then, and uh, I did have a little problem. So you coming from uh, down south, which the, where they say racism or, or you know, with the Ku Klux Klan and all that other stuff, and you had no issues or problems, what you're saying in, in your literature and your books, Dr. Hill. Well, I, we moved to, to Stone Mountain, which was then predominantly populated by, it was a predominantly white neighborhood, and mm. there were many, many Klan's members living there. 
But, you know, I think by 1985, America, you know, after the 60s and the great, the great third founding, I call the 64 Civil Rights Act, I think we had passed beyond a certain tale of racism. My, the, the clans members that I encountered in my subdivision, in my neighborhood where I was living, you know, were very civil. They were very polite. Um, we weren't social activists. We weren't out to upset their value system. We were here to take advantage of the American dream. Oh. And one thing I like about Southerners is that regardless of what they think of you privately, and people might call this hypocrisy, but I think this is the public face of civility, is that they're very polite, and they wanted to know what I wanted to do with my life. Mm. And once they realized that I did not have a sense of entitlement, that I was not here to be a parasite on the state, that I was paying as I went along, that I wanted to accomplish very great things for my life, but that the responsibility was mine, I think I earned their respect in many, in many ways. You know, I did encounter some sort of sometimes racist um, attitudes, Right. But the wonderful thing about the country at that time is, and the way I feel about the country now is that race does not determine your destiny. You can transcend. We have progressed to such an extent that, speaking as a professor of 22 years, mm. if you're a black man, um, if you're a Native American, universities will bend over backwards to accommodate you, to get you into their systems. This is the best country in the world to be a gay person, mm. to be a black person, to be any minority person. And I've lived in Europe for for a while, for a year. I took some time off. And, and you also do you also taught uh, do you also taught in Europe and Asia as well, correct? Other that's right. right. Yes, I have right. Yes, mm. I have. Uh, and um, I just think that we are a progressive, not in the left sense of progressive, in the sense mm. of we are a society that is always seeking. To question ourselves, we question ourselves, and we have a self-reflexivity clause built into our system that is always overcoming and trying to correct. One thing that impresses me about this great country of ours that I talk about in the book is we're always trying to correct our errors. Mm. We're always trying to question where do we go wrong, and how can we make our society a better place. Um, the American people I have not found to be a xenophobic, anti-foreign people. Quite the opposite. It's mm. one of the few countries where an ac- I still have my accent after being here for 32 years, <laughs> where a foreign accent elicits curiosity as opposed to hostility. You know, mm. I remember even in the South, people saying, well, where are you from, boy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that, by the way, myself. Going <laughs> back, but... It actually becomes uh, comical now, I, I think, you know. And some yes. people use it, and, uh, you know, as, uh, comedians use that. Uh, so, uh, But you're, in, in the last 50 years, I would say, uh, civil rights movement, it's a tremendous. I've, I've seen it. I've lived it. I've seen it. The tremendous, uh, right. tremendous change, Dr. Hill. It's just yeah. uh, we are. And, if you, you know, like the readings and browsing through some of your books, it's like you, you, you're coming here. To not to get a handout, you you coming here to be an asset, you know, especially in your case, you know. So uh, <laughs> and and you're right, people, human beings, and you use that term a lot. And human beings uh, can sense it and see it and appreciate it. That's right. So, uh, but you've achieved, you achieved so much, and and and, and you're young. You're pretty. I, compared to me, I'm saying you're pretty pretty young fellow, and uh, there are. Uh, people that uh, b- again not to be repetitious, born and raised in this country, they couldn't 
they could not achieve what uh, you have achieved. But it has to be in you, which it was in your upbringing, and uh, and you chose this country. But I, I you know, I, I like when you make a comparison to other countries and you say we are the most, again, moral country in the world, and, uh, and you compare it to other countries which you call tribalism. Yes. Yes. What you you know people when I mentioned to someone they say what what is you know what does Doctor Hill mean about tribalism in these other countries? Well, I mean that America is really the first country uh, in the world in which citizenship is not based on blood. It's not based on ethnic belonging. It's not based on tribal affiliation. Mm. It's based on. It's theoretically open to anyone, regardless of religious orientation, regardless of. Uh, race or ethnicity. When I have studied world history very carefully, and it's only since the recent times in the last 15 years that Germany has revised its citizenship laws. You know, you could have been a Turk uh, oh. or any other ethnicity born in Germany. Your children could have been raised in Germany, and their children could have been raised in Germany. You could never become a German citizen because mm. you didn't have German blood or ancestry. America is this amazing experiment where we have opened up our shores and said to anyone in the world, so long as you pledge allegiance to the core central values of our republic, you could be an atheist, you could be a Republican, you could be a Democrat, you could be a Libertarian, whatever. There are just certain core central values, right, that give our republic its identity. And you pledge a thin allegiance to those values, and then you're free to cultivate your own sense of the good life. The state has no business saying whether you want to pursue a career and make that the central focus of your life. You want to be a mom and have five kids and make that the central focus of your life. This is what I mean by America being really an unprecedented mm. phenomenon in the history of humankind. Immigrant, the word, the word immigrant itself really is an American word. Mm. Um, it's, uh, it gets its conceptual thrust, its conceptual meaning, really, by ostensibly pointing to America. Uh, we gave that term its, 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 its moral, and we gave that term its empirical significance, uh, because we really are the first robust in immigrant society. And people take this for granted, mm -hmm. either because they haven't lived elsewhere, Correct. Yes. or because they haven't read world history very carefully oh. um, so, and that's what I mean by being a moral country when you open up your shores to anyone an untouchable in India it's a story I tell in my book right uh, someone who is the lowest caste member oh. no one would dare even touch you touch this man and you want to take a bath in India if you're if you're if you belong to certain classes in India he comes to America he comes to the deep south He's very dark-skinned, still untouchable. He's a Dalit. No one in, in the South in 1987 knows who the hell an untouchable is. They just know he's from India. He's Indian. He's East Indian. And this man has grit, tenacity, resilience, perseverance. He's working two jobs. He's a legal immigrant such as myself. He's on a... I had a green card. He had a, a, student, a student visa. And he eventually becomes an architect. Amazing. Something that would not have been possible in India, but that's something that was made possible by this amazing country that says, we don't care where you come from. All we care about is where you're heading. Right. And you have an aspirational identity, and you pin that aspiration on the best that 
that America has to offer you. Mm. And there is plenty that America has to offer anyone. You know, other besides India, there are other countries, and you were, I think you were there, you were in Asia, is that they, they do, you know, and they're all, I might say their own people, that's from their country, that they look down at them to be, you know, and and exactly right, and they can achieve what you're, what you're talking about in this country. They could never achieve that in their, in their country. Another great thing that you, you talk about is that the immigrants that are coming to this country is that uh, all we ask you is to assimilate. We don't ask you to abandon your identity. That's right. Right, and that's, that's one. Right. Yes, and you know, and you know. People don't realize that, you know, we're, uh, again, I, I guess we're spoiled to a degree. We're so used to having this freedom in, in this country that we, again, we take it for granted. And someone like you, uh, not only uh, that you achieve the American, American dream, very few of us in America can be a, a college professor, especially of uh, the arts. And I mean, you, you, uh, so I hope I was right when I mentioned all your books. Did I miss any book out? Because I know you got four or no, five that's books. Fine. No, those, those are those are the necessary ones. I mean, you can always go on Amazon and find, right. and find find the recent the most, uh, my my back publication. The one that I'm really proud about is this this one called "We Have Overcome: An Immigrant's Letter to the American People." Because it's not only my I've written a lot of academic books and so on, but this mm. is my first commercial book, which is also paradoxically dedicated to the American people. It's, it's dedicated to America. Uh, the dedication reads to the American people wow, in the name of the best within you. And uh, I really wanted, you know, so many people regard Americans as crass and vulgar mm. and mean-spirited. And I, I just, this really upsets me. I really wanted to write something to show the American people the best within themselves, the, the, the part of themselves that have made it possible for individuals such as myself um, with their openness and their kindness and their their lack of envy, their love of achievement, you know, um, that that they should be rewarded. That they they are the unsung heroes, um, who from law enforcement, police officers to a nurse's assistant, in mm. whatever line of work you do, whether you know you're an American and, and you've made this country possible for immigrants to come here. Um, so actually, and, so uh, your book, you're thanking, you're thanking us for where you were exactly. today. You're thanking this country, but you know, I have to say this: where would we, where would this country be without educators like you? You know, so uh, personally, I, uh, on behalf of whomever, I thank you truthfully for, for coming here and enlightening us about things that are in front of us that we, we that we don't we really don't see it. You know, we have there are people out there that like you that say, you know, you people in, in your different way, you are very fortunate to be part of this country. And all of us, even that people that are born here, are, are, can you know uh, be, receive the American dream. You know, I just yeah. just I hate that sometimes I, I I do talk about myself in, in a sense, and I have to now is talk about the American dream, and I use myself as an example. Uh, for what I've done and I think I achieved in, in my scope of life. And how, what, what I say is I was a shoeshine boy at nine years old. Mm. I had a shoeshine wow. box and I would take it to Times Square. And at nine years old, 
I was embarrassed, so I hide it in a potato sack and carry it like I was carrying stuff back and forth in the subways. And because I didn't want to, I was from the Lower East Side and want anybody seeing with a shoe shine or a box. But what I'm saying is, uh, years later, I ran for Congress. I was a congressional candidate. I didn't win. Mm. But the, what I'm saying is, how can a little shoe shine boy, right? Uh, when I was shining shoes there for Nicholas Shine, I'm giving away my age, you know, or, or, but I don't care at this point in life. But to be able to run for Congress, what other country can, can you do that, you know? Exactly. Be a con- exactly. congressional candidate and meet the people I have met, and governors and senators and the president, even the former, even the present president, you know, personally. Uh, you know, and so I use myself as an example of, uh, you know, educational-wise, no, I'm nowhere near, you know, what, what you've done. But I think I uh, I sort of, uh, uh, you know, gained from this American dream. So I, I pretty much uh, understand. And, I, I, you know, your book sort of, because, uh, I, you know, I advertise you in, in different areas and people did some research on you and they... Uh, they uh, they say where were you where were you hiding Dr Jason Hill because there's there was, there's yeah there's so many people out there with the opposite they uh, you know they 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 cause issues and I don't want to just touch on one that you uh, uh you know for someone you know that you, I have to say that there's a couple of things that you're not happy with uh, or uh, you use uh, I mean I don't want to promote this uh, this guy's book you know it's uh, uh, anyway, here's the book out, and it's just the opposite between the world and me. I'm, you know, I don't even want to mention his name. I know you're not happy with this guy. No, uh, I'm not. Yeah, and it, it's like an agitator, you know. Yes. You know, and he steers the pot, you know. So, and I know that bugs you in, in plain English terms. Well, he was a motivator for writing that book. I, this book, I have to tell you, I I heard him on television. The book had come out. His book, Between the World and Me. And I read it, and I was disgusted. It was yes. attacking the American dream. It was calling the American dream racist and exploitative and the destroy of neighborhoods and calling, you know, said that we're ruled by majoritarian pigs, which means he was calling the American people pigs, mm. um, which offended me. So I put the book down. And then um, a year later, he was on television just demonizing this country, and I said, enough. So I wrote an article in Commentary Magazine uh, and it went viral within about seven hours. Mm. And uh, a New York publisher called me and said, "Would you write a book based on the article?" And defend, you know, I said, "I said I know the, I know the book that I'd love to write. Mm. It's a, it's like it's going to be a love letter to America. It's not. It's going to go way beyond this guy. I'll take him on in the book, but the book needs to go much, much further than what he's saying. This book needs to transcend the pettiness of what he stands for and take on." the moral meaning of this great country. Yes. Um, so, you know. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I appreciate that. So uh, that's, that's why I'm, I'm saying people were saying, where the heck is, where has he been, this doctor? But now they see you now. You know, last night you won, I think, a most, one of the most popular shows out there, you know, based on uh, on polls, uh, Fox and Friends, you know, the other couple of stations, which I do watch just out of curiosity. I either, I either watch those, uh, I'm going to say it's CNN or NBC, when I don't feel like going to the Bronx Zoo or something, you know. <laughs> so or if I want to watch a good cartoon, I will get a kick and laugh at that. You know, that's I'm not. I'm saying it's not you, of course. You know, uh, 
something else that uh, I, I know, which is you, you do slam to a degree these uh, liberal colleges. And yes, why I have to? I know why, but for the audience's sake, why is that, uh, Doctor Hill? Well, I think that you know, or institutions of higher learning or universities are becoming national security threats because they're becoming indoctrination centers mm. for our students. They are becoming conduits through which our left-wing professors are radicalizing our students into becoming socialists and teaching. Everything is being taught. Through through the lens of cultural Marxism. When I was in school, college, almost 30 years ago, you know, the the, the left still dominated the social sciences and the humanities, but at least there was a moral obligation to teach a fair and balanced um, set of principles and values. Now today, when I try to teach people like von Mises and Hayek and teach the morality of wealth creation, capitalism, the scholarship on capitalism, Mm. Um, you know, written by Nobel Prize winners, um, I'm I'm the horror that I'm greeted with, both by some of the students and by the professoriate, is um, is just amazing. But it's more than that, Lou. It's also that the very idea of the Western canon itself, the very idea of reason, rational argumentation. Um, these are coming under increasing attack, and these are being seen as the constructs of racist, white, imperialist, mm. oppressive males. Uh, so the Enlightenment project itself, a project that on whom all of us are dependent for our liberation, on whom the Founding Fathers are part of, but also were dependent on, uh, is being seen in the Academy as the enemy of all people. Mm. So there has been a shift, I think, in the last 25 years where this kind of mentality is taking ascendancy. And I really feel quite strongly that the professoriate is using our students as guinea pigs to foist on them their own ultra-left-wing ideologies with no incentive to offer um, a balanced perspective. And I think this is I think this is going to become worse. I think that it, um, since yeah, no, it seems that it seems that way. You know, what you know, in the I guess in the layman's time, I would call it brainwashing. You know? I think it's brainwashing. I yeah. think it's brainwashing. Yeah, and 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 that's that's why I agree with you. It's, it's going to get worse. Uh, you know, not to get political. I know you you don't want to get too close to. Uh, to politics in the sense is that uh, I think we were fortunate. I'm saying this again, not not Dr. Jason Hill. I'm saying this. I think changing in, uh, administrations and, you know, uh, the presidency, I, I think is a step forward, you know, as opposed to, and I'm not going to just talk about, I'm talking about the last two presidents who were stagnant or went backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I think this is a good step forward, and it's so much controversial. And I have it on the show here with different different people, but uh, uh, so that is to me is like a, a savior. You know, well, I speak as a conservative independent, and I think going back to the issue of um, why I think this is becoming worse is that I think since the last election, a kind of mass hysteria has descended upon our university. Mm. 
So whereas before, you know, like I said, the social sciences, the humanities, and other departments have always been dominated by the left, there was at least the idea that a good liberal arts education involves making sure that students are um, encounter, that students encounter differing, radically differing viewpoints. I think a kind of mass hysteria has descended upon our universes today mm. since the last election where people are panicking, where people think that somehow we are being led into fascism. But they're fighting this ridiculous fantasy in their head that we're being led into fascism, which I think is absolute nonsense, <laughs> by another form of fascism, you know, mm. a, a kind of... To- Stalinist totalitarianism, where groupthink and indoctrination are are being foisted, and not only that, hatred of America. I cannot tell you the hatred of America uh, that is part and parcel of the identity of the American professorate. American professors hate America, uh, you, and where's the? It's great. I, I know it's, it's true, but no, I'm sorry, Doctor. Go ahead. American professors hate America. Why? Why is that, Doctor Hill? I think they hate America for a number of reasons. I think one is that the 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 left, the the humanities and social sciences professors have always been left leaning. They have always found that their values, which are Marxist communist mm. values, are inimical to the values of the American people. You see, the biggest breach in this country, I don't believe, is between blacks and whites or the rich and the poor. The biggest breach in this country is between the intellectuals and the people, where the people are common-sense-oriented, technologically-oriented, they have a can-do spirit, they have a pioneering spirit, spirit, and the intellectuals themselves are emotionless. They're driven by emotions, although they would think they're driven by reason. They have a set of old-fashioned 18th and 19th century mm. values that are not part of the political DNA of this country. Socialism and communism are not part of the D- or political DNA. We're not by nature socialist thinking people. And so they hate the American people and they hate America for this refusal to capitulate to their vision of a socialist America. I think that's that's the, that's the fundamental reason. I think the other reason they hate America is just hatred of the good for being the good. Mm-hmm. They look out at the American foreign policy, which has been disastrous for the past 50 years. Right. I mean, it has been hypocritical. It has been principled. But we're not an NGO. Sometimes we have to make alliances with mm-hmm. people that are not nice, right? But they, they, they capitalize on the inconsistency of American foreign policy and refuse to look at the extent to which American foreign policy has also been beneficial to several third world countries, my own country included, has eradicated debt and poverty from many countries in the world, emancipated debt from wholesale debt from several countries, have altruistically given away the American taxpayers' money (laughs) in the form of grants and humanitarian aid. But they tend to see America as an imperialist, unjust, exploitative country. And um, and I think this message that's being imparted to our students is very, very dangerous. Someone, and if yes. I can play some role in doing this, someone has got to stand up and say this is wrong. Mm. 
Mm, absolutely. You know, this, uh, then the basic question, though, a common sense question, is that then why are they? Why are they in this country? Why don't you? Why don't they go to a, a socialistic country? And we have them out there. Why don't they move out of the country that they detest, hate, and despise? You know, instead of breeding and brainwashing these young people, and uh, you know who are, and they seem to be more vulnerable than no millenniums, which you touch on by the way in one of your books. But uh, why do they? Then uh, how do you? What? How would you want to? I, I mean, I'm, I'm just getting a little tongue-tied. I'm saying they hate this country so much. Why don't they get the hell out of this country in plain English? Because they know that that's the moral hypocrisy, and and intellectuals from other countries from the wonderful socialist countries of Sweden and Denmark and Finland are trying to get in here for fiscal relief because they're so taxed, because they know deep down inside that the corporate grants, I call them Bolshevik-loving welfare scholars, mm. right? They know that it is capitalism that is financing their well-being. They know that in a country in which, let's say, a discipline such as mind philosophy, which is not a money-making discipline uh, that doesn't attract that many majors, that such a phenomenon can only be possible by the endowments and the grants of the so-called evil corporations, right, like Coca-Cola, like what used to be IBM. You know, these corporate grants keep afloat the liberal arts. They know this. They know that in any other country that didn't have the sort of benevolence and goodwill where donors are giving money uh, to these institutions, that they will be out of a job tomorrow. Mm. Well, my guess is Dr. Jason E. Hill is a great, uh, again, a great example of the American dream, who's a professor of philosophy at, uh, at DePaul University in, in Chicago. And uh, uh, we touch on, if he just came on, or came on the year, we're talking about uh, Dr. Paul's, uh, uh, sorry, Dr. Jason E. Hill's uh, latest book, We Have Overcome, great book. He's thanking America and Americans, you know, for how he's achieved what he uh, became such a, uh, a great distinguished, you know, uh, faculty of DuPaul uh, uni- University. And, uh, okay, I just want to let the audience know, just in case they just uh, popped on the air at the, at the, the uh, 5, uh, 5 p.m. You, you know, when you mention, I just want to, with people that want to know, you mentioned the term Bolshevik before, you know, Bolshevik are just people that don't, can, I, I obviously, I, I shouldn't say obviously, but Bolshevik is sort of like Stalinism or Leningrad and socialism, communistic, for, I, I think that was originated in Russia. Am I correct, Dr. Hill? That's right, that's right. So, that um, that overthrow the czar. That's right. Yeah. So you think that it, it's, it's we're, we're going to, we're going back into that uh, Bolshevik type of uh, you know uh, I, I I guess uh, country. I mean, we're not. We never we were never there. But they were trying to bring us into into that type of uh, uh, again uh, society. I think the professorate has a great dream of America moving towards. A, a, a form of socialism, and we see this, right? Mm. We see this in the form of this woman, um, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, and the far left really adopting mm. uh, the the vocabulary of socialism in the, in the form of like a universal basic income, free college tuition, not affordable, but free college tuition for everyone, uh, free universal health care, 
I mean, when I was when I first came to this country, liberal was a was a bad word. Socialism was a horrible word. Mm. Now they're normalizing words like socialism. So I think this is. I don't think I'm making this stuff up. I think this is becoming very dangerous, and I think the the left, the far left college professors in the humanities and the social sciences are seeing that socialism is becoming a normalized concept. But I think they're going to have a rude awakening. I think the American people are not an entitlement people. We're not an aggrievement people. We are a people who like to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are dignified Mm. people who believe that when you decouple work from income, you eviscerate people of their dignity and their value, and that socialism is nothing more than the expropriation of money from productive people to give to unproductive people. Mm. Americans, in their hearts, do not like that concept. Now, that concept, concept is that so they can control people? Is that the reason, pretty much, close to it? So that they can... Well, I think, I, I think what they dream of is vesting ownership of private property and, oh. and, and wealth and capital from, 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 from individuals, investing it in the community. Mm. I think that's their great dream. And, uh, and they do this by, you see, giving uh, socialism a respectable... You see, you just don't... You don't use the word socialism too often. What you do is you give some of the so-called advantages of socialism respectability, like President Obama was in South Africa recently saying, we need to be advocating something like a universal basic income. Mm. Or you say all students deserve free college tuition. Right? So you, you speak to the hearts of people um, and get them to accept some of the tenets of socialism, and then you've got them hooked to the philosophy. Mm. But someone has to go out there and explain that not only does socialism not work empirically, there's not one socialist country in the world that has succeeded, but that it is unethical, that it is, it is not a morally neutral system. It is not the moral equivalent of capitalism. It is an unethical system. Just, I tell my students, you know, when I teach um, segments of, of different thinkers who advance socialist ideas, and then I teach morality of capitalism, I said, just as it would be unethical for you to pick my pocket and mm. take the money out of my wallet to finance <laughs> your causes, when the government does it by legalized means through expropriation of my, my money, oh. it doesn't make it any right, any better. Mm. So the moral case, for, it's not enough to just fight socialism. People also have to go out there and give the moral justification for capitalism, that each man and woman is an end in him or herself and is entitled to the products of his or her efforts, which means that you're entitled to the products of your mind, because mm. wealth, is a, wealth is a creation of the mind and of one's talents. And the government has no business nationalizing anyone's mind, yes. which, is what which is what socialism is all about. Mm. There are very, what, what upsets me is that there are very, very few people who are willing to go out and give a moral, ethical defense of capitalism. What do and they, that yes, but what would they have to achieve, these professors that we're talking about that are, are uh, teaching our, our young people? What, uh, what benefit... Uh, how do they achieve themselves? Uh, how does that better them, or you know, how does that? Uh, why does that put them in their mind in, the, in a better, uh, I guess, a better way of life in this country, which they believe and preach? How would they gain personally from that? Well, I think they have this. 
Well, it gives it gives them a great sense of power mm. uh, in a world in which most of them are socially insignificant. I mean, they write Very unreadable good. books. Very good. They write un, unreadable tracts that no one reads. They produce a, a great deal of scholarship, like I said, <laughs> that uh, no one can understand, and that could only be possible in a capitalist country. Um, so they 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 feel they're emancipated from their social insignificance. Mm. They're made to feel like they're exercising and wielding a great deal of power. And they have this enormous fantasy that under a socialist system, their already advanced quality of life mm. would be even greater, which is a complete fantasy because capitalism is the only system that has raised this unprecedented the standard of living for untold millions of people at an unprecedented rate. Uh, um, so it's it's a fantasy construct that I think they're working with. And they have people, like young people, that they believe, like uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland or uh, the Wizard of Oz type of uh, world that uh, it's gonna, that's waiting for them. So uh, and they get again to repeat the word that's uh, brainwashing to a to a to a degree. Now. Uh, we're in the new millennium, of course, and one of your books, uh, Becoming a Cosmopolitan, what, actually what it means, uh, and I like the term you use, a human being in the new millennium. Uh, what exactly does that mean, Dr. Hill, if I may? Well, the Cosmopolitan was someone who was a lover of humanity, um, who, for whom the locus of ethical concern was not groups, uh, but the individual. Um, so not just a lover of humanity and a lover of um, a world citizen, considered himself a world citizen who loved individuals. Mm. But uh, it's, it's a philosophy of individualism where you don't seek to ascribe moral worth to groups. You ascribe moral worth to individuals. And the question that I pose in that book is how is it possible for us to sort of overcome this kind of identity politics in which we're mired in, in, in which we think of ourselves first as hyphenated individuals, which there's nothing wrong with, with taking some semblance of pride from one, you know, whether you're German-American or Irish-American. Right. But at the end of it all, we're all, we're first and foremost, even those of us who were born in foreign countries, such as myself, we're Americans. We're Americans. And... Yeah. Um, and so I was really troubled by what I saw as, you know, the growing factionalism in this country, um, spearheaded by a really nefarious politics of identity, politics of identity. And I wanted to revive the concept of the cosmopolitan. That the cosmopolitan is the individual who is not afraid of modifying his identity mm. by encountering different people from different parts of the world. Because what's important for the cosmopolitan is the individual's identity, not his racial, ethnic, or right. national identity. Yeah. But that each person has a God-given, intrinsic moral value. You don't get your you don't get your dignity from the government or the state, which is what the left would like us to mm. believe. You get your good dignity from God, who gives you dignity and gives you um, moral, intrinsic worth that you can't get from your group, you can't get from your race, you can't get from your ethnicity. We saw what that type of thinking led in Nazi Germany. Right. Uh, you get mm. your, your dignity is something that you possess intrinsically just by being a human being. 
And that is what the cosmopolitan responds to. What? You know, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned uh, Nazi Germany. Just, uh, and that's what the socialism reminds me of to a degree, is that how we were able to get, which is mind-boggling for me, for, for not only many people, how does someone like Adolf Hitler be able to get millions of people follow him? The guy was like the devil. You know, yes, and how yes. he was able to do that. There are, you know, it's just, again, it's just, uh, uh, and the, the reason I'm saying that is because well, we, uh, this country, you know, uh, like you mentioned, was we, we morally involved, and, 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 and what we did after World War II, we helped the countries, uh, and financially as well, which is mostly we did, uh, that there were our enemies during World War II. We just so right. we are, you know. Where where would you find this? It's just, uh, you know. And but well, I talk about that, and people they, oh no, you're right, you're right. We destroyed the place because we had to, you know. And then we yes. help them rebuild it. <laughs> that's right. Did, that's right. We did not annex Japan. We did not annex Germany. Right. Uh, we imposed a, a, a rational constitution, democratic constitution on Japan, and and look at where Japan stands today oh, through the Marshall Plan. We rebuilt the German economy, and look at where Germany stands today. Right. Any other civilization, and I call America not a culture. I hate when people talk about American culture. Mm. We're not a culture. We are a civilization. Any other civilization, America is, I think, the only civilization that vanquished the enemy and didn't take over the place and her people, but liberated them and set them free. Mm. This is amazing. This is, you know, when people talk about America being imperialistic, I said, are you kidding me? I know. And we, we had the Philippines for a while, but we gave the Philippines, you know, we gave the Philippines back, and they have their independence today. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah we, don't, uh, we don't believe in the dictatorship in this, in this country. One of the few countries that don't, you know, uh, uh, you can talk about these countries where they have great leaders, but in, indirectly it sort of touches on... Uh, you know, being a, a dictator to a degree, but we don't have that in this country. You know, so it's a, it's just a, amazing. You know, I just uh, anyway, my guest is Dr. Jason E. Hill. He's like, uh, not to be repetitious, but I, I I love saying it because if you if you if you look at his books and he wrote four of them, his latest book is We Have Over We Have Overcome, and he is so grateful and thankful for what he achieved coming as a as a young person from the Caribbean island of uh, Jamaica, but you know there were so many people that are grateful like you, but they don't have your intellect to let us know, you know, <laughs> so we're very fortunate that, uh, you know, and I'm fortunate to have you as a guest, by the way, because we, there's so many things that, uh, you know, we agree on. I think I'm more right than wrong in most of the things I do, and uh, to have a conversation with someone like you, uh, indirectly, uh, well, I shouldn't say indirectly, but... Uh, we agree on on many things. I just want to touch on something. You initially, you know, we have all these different controversial groups, and out there, in my background is, you know, pretty much uh, law enforcement. And uh, even mm -hmm. though, by the way, doc, I uh, I have lectured at colleges and schools and high schools and colleges and and different corporations on, on different topics. But I I don't have degrees, but I, I still do it because they want to hear my perspective from from my history, pretty much. You know, and a lot of them say, you know, they assume, you know, assumption is amazing. You know, a lot of things I do here. Oh, Lou, how would you know you're what's um, on, on positions I take? How would you know you're a Democrat Republican? And I tell them I was never a Republican, not even a registered Republican now. 
you know? So right. it shocks right. people, and they think, oh, what do you know? You're a rich white guy from Long Island. First of all, they don't even. I so I, you know. Meanwhile, I was born in a tenement building on the Lower East Side in, in New York, you know. And uh, but the question is, am I really white? I never divulge my background. People guess all the time, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I say, I say to them, I'll give you a hint. I say to them, you know, my nickname in the police department was Tonto. Just start from there, you know, and then and then use your imagination, you know, and then you know, oh, oh I because. Uh, again, they perceive, because you don't agree with their narrative or their position, like we're talking about, all of a sudden you are evil and a bad person, you know, and, it's, yeah. and they, they want to believe, like you say, uh, you know, uh, they want to believe uh, you're part of that, you know, whatever dream or nightmare that they 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 have. Now, uh, what, I, what I did, uh, I put my foot in my mouth a little bit because I want to talk about uh Black Lives Matter. I think initially that you had you you did support that to agree when it first came out. The Black Lives Matter, uh, I guess, group, or corporation, whatever they want to call it. So, mm-hmm. so but yeah, initially, um, initially when they first started, I thought you know they were targeting a specific problem, a very strategically specific problem, which was the shooting of unarmed black men in this country. And I thought, okay, um, uh, when you look at it uh, from a statistical standpoint, it's it's not a national security threat. It's not a – it's a problem. But, right. there's, but anyway, they were addressing it, and I thought, fine. Then they began to stray from their lane. They started – first of all, I'm a radical um, defender of Israel, and they started attacking Israel – Yes. As a genocidal Amazing. apartheid state. And I think, you know, the Jewish civilization is one of the greatest civilizations that ever existed. Yeah. And when you start attacking a de- the, only de- the only democratic state in that very dark, primitive region yes. of the world, <laughs> I like the technological civilization, uh. as a genocidal apartheid state. And then I thought, you know, when you look at the black on black crime that exists in this country, that's a far greater problem. And I have to say, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and, and where you are sitting right now, Chicago is is one of the highest black on black crimes. It's it's it's, it's the highest. And the highest. Be, I thought I thought they should be doing a couple of things. One is they should be engaging these gang members because they have Black Lives Matter has some sort of moral credibility going into the black communities. Holding blacks accountable for the black on black crime, engaging with these black black these gang members and 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 strategically working with them, disbanding them. More importantly, working with law enforcement to 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 help build trust with the community. What really turned me off as a radical also supporter of law enforcement was the demonization of law enforcement of police officers. No civilization, and this civilization cannot exist without the honorable men and women in blue. And when they started not only talking about breaking up of banks, I read their manifesto, they have a mm. Marxist platform, you know, yes. breaking up of banks, U.S. corporations, but started demonizing law enforcement. I think there's something terribly wrong. The more radical fringe element of the Black Lives Matter movement started talking about the abolition of the police force mm. and I said no this is lunacy this is they've lost their lucidity they've lost any semblance of sa- sanity so, that they once had mm. 
you know, the unsung heroes in our uh, in our country, among others. There are many unsung heroes, but it's yes. law enforcement. Black officers, white officers, Hispanic officers go into these communities, Hispanic communities with gangs, black communities with gangs. I have friends who are police officers. One of my closest friends is a police officer. And they go in and they risk their lives for black people, for Hispanic people, for white people. They risk their lives regardless of color. Law and police officers don't care what color you are. Their job is to save lives, to prevent crime, and for, for the Black Lives Matter movement to issue such vitriol and hatred, mm. outright hatred, but blanket condemnation of law enforcement. I wash my hands clean. I said, you know, actually, I not only have to wash my hands clean, I have to speak out against this kind of, these kinds of attacks that they're making right. against the American economy, against law enforcement. Well, you, you mentioned that the, the statistics, statistics on that uh, is completely off, off, off base. Uh, obviously, you know, when New York City itself uh, has the most diverse police department in the country, you know, and, yes. and chances are today's world, uh, if I have to say, if four cops respond to an incident, uh, at least two, at least two, maybe three are minorities, you know, in today's world. And, yeah, so, you know, so, no, I thank you for that. I thank you for for saying that. But, you know, I found a common denominator in the Black Lives Matter movement is that it seems to be the ones that they were fighting or protect were really black criminals with long, extensive criminal history. I, and, yeah. I, and I just touched on you coming from Chicago. Why are they not in Chicago where young black people, uh, I think there was in the last couple of years, 1,500 in the last two years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. no, I, I don't see the L. Sharptons there, and I don't, uh, Jesse Jacksons, I don't see the Black Lives Matter there. These are young people. They're lucky if they make it to 21 years old. It's happening right here right. in New York. And right now it's happening. Uh, pretty much every week in New York City now, and if you know this, young people being shot in the street, and yeah. uh, you, you know, and you know, yeah. the sad part is that uh, we, we we had a, a policy in New York City stop question the frisk, which got a lot of guns off the street. So they, they yeah. the poli- politicians made it a racial I- issue, doctor. But since they abandoned that, we've had young people dying. They said, well, all the uh, minorities are being. Uh, being stopped, searched, and and frisked, you, you know. But do you know what the stats are now? Ninety-nine percent of these are black children that are being murdered in the streets, you know. Okay. So, you know, it's the the whole idea is is the end result: get a gun off the street. That's the whole idea: okay. is get a gun yeah. off the street. So that that was all political by the mayor of the city of New York, you know, by saying, "Well, the cops are only going to target minorities." Uh, half the police department in New York City happen to be minorities now. You know, doctor. <laughs> that's that's the irony of it. It's, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. half. You know, well, of course, they got several different South American countries. You know, one time it was mostly Puerto Rican, if you were Hispanic. You know, the Ecuador, uh, Cuban. It's you know, many different um, Latin American countries who are, are cops today. So, no, I you know, I, I thank you for supporting that. I do have a you know, even though you know my background is blue, like you mentioned, uh, I'm not crazy about this saying blue lives matter. I think all lives matter. Obviously, all lives matter. All lives matter. Yeah, uh, blue is like tit for tat, you know. And uh, I think you know we're saying, oh, you're saying this, and I'm saying that. No, all lives matter, doctor. And, and that's what I, I think it it could be. We got about four minutes left. I want to touch on something that you were really 
uh, talked about is that this uh, Islamophobia that we have here in this country, you know, that it's, yeah. uh, you, you know, and, and you mentioned the Borka, am I pronouncing that right? And in France, the women are not allowed to dress like Islamic uh, people, that, you know, uh, it's, it's close to Sharia law, and I know you, yeah. were, you were critical on that on, as far as, uh, and you compared that to, uh, it's like a woman being a, uh, domestic violence, I think, was your term on that. Right. So, uh, well, yeah. I, I, yes. I don't think that we have Islamophobia in this country at all. Mm. I think that it is an enormous uh, comment on our civilization that after 9-1-1, we did not have mass sale burning down of mosques or attacks against Muslims. If this right. had happened in Saudi Arabia or Iran, mm. there True. would be wholesale murders of Christians and the burning down of churches. We don't have Islamophobia. Muslims were not stripped of their legal rights. They were not. They were not. They were not largely demonized. We had at the time President Bush coming out and saying, you know, we are not against Muslims. A president saying we are against radical Islam. Yes. And I think that France was proper in in, in making a statement against the burqa because the burqa is not a religious. Garment. Mm. Nowhere in the Quran is it mandated that a woman has to be covered from head to toe. It's an ideological, and I hate to use the word patriarchal, but it's a patriarchal ideological construct by men to suppress women mm. and to deny them their their equality as human beings in the world. And I think France is right to say that on our shores, on our great republic, we do not tolerate those sorts of values right. stand for gender equality and equality of all persons. Right. And you need to assimilate into the core values of the republic. Um, so this notion of Islamophobia, I think, again, is, you know, is, oh, yes. is, is, a, is, a, is a notion that the left has created. Um, uh, and they're so hypocritical because when, 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 when Christians, when nobody, you know, when, when Muslims accuse Christians of all sorts of things. Nobody accuses them of Christophobia. Right. Sure. But the minute that Muslims, you know, you, you offer criticism against something that a Muslim has done, of rational criticism, right. you're accused of Islamophobia. Mm. We have, which country we have so many different phobias, and they're all created from the left, seems like, you know? All these, uh, yeah. you know, is there a pill for this phobia or something to, you know, to put these people asleep? I don't mean, you know permanently, but I mean just to keep them quiet and stop spreading this hatred and this trying to bring, uh, I don't know, communism to this, this country, I guess I'm, I'm saying to a degree. I, I, anyway, my guess is uh, i got about two minutes left. I just want to give you a plug. How can people get your book, your great book, especially the uh, the latest one, We Have Overcome? Uh, we Have Overcome. Well, they can get it from Barnes & Noble, Barnes any and Noble. bookstore. They can also get it on Amazon. Uh, the book has been doing so well that I Amazon, I think, ran out a little bit of, of, of copies, but it's there, it's available. You might have to wait a, a couple of days to get your book, but please place your order on Amazon. Um, um, I think we are going into a second printing right now, right. and so place your order, and the book will be there in a week or so. Wow. Um, uh, all right, and it's available on Kindle also, but and hardback on Amazon, or any bookstore should have it. Great. Also, Google Dr. Jason uh, E. Hill from uh, Purdue and uh, DePaul University in Chicago. You have to look at all his books. Dr. Jason E. Hill, I want to thank you for being my guest on Streetwise. I want to thank you so much for having me. It was, it was, it was my pleasure.